Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, Episode 49, Juliana Garayzar with the Houston Angel Network talks about the process of angel investment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. Step. I'm Philip Valitza, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked with Bill McAllister of Top Dog Direct about as-seen-on-TV products. So make sure to check out episode 48 if you want to hear more about licensing your product and getting in front of home shopping networks. Before we get started today, I wanted to recap on what I talked about last week. I kicked off a 14-day Just Start Challenge. So that's designed for everybody that feels like maybe you don't have the motivation to get started or you've been procrastinating. You spent months or years reading or listening, but you haven't taken action. You might have some limiting beliefs, like you might think that you're not good enough at something or you don't have the right skills or you don't have the right money. If any of this describes you, then you'll want to take part in the free 14-day Just Start Challenge. I'm conducting it live. I'm not sure when I will conduct it live again. And you'll be able to jump into the Facebook group, interact with other people that are taking the challenge, see what other people are struggling with, connect with them, and we'll all work out a way forward together. So if you or someone you know is ready to stop listening about launching products or creating their business and they're ready to just start working on it, and you want simple advice to help you get unstuck and take action, then you need to sign up. Since this is a live challenge, I'm going to close entries to this tomorrow. That's Wednesday, April 18th. So go to theproductstartup.com slash just start, enter your name and email address, and I'll get you set up. Before we get started with the main guest for today, I wanted to share an update from Matt Hoffma of Mini Materials. Matt and Eric launched Mini Materials to provide miniature construction materials like bricks, cinder blocks, pallets, and other products, and we first talked back on episode 5 in April 2016. So here's their one-year update. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us on the show again. Hey, how are you doing? So I'm happy to have you on. We talked last time. It was in early of 2016, in April 2016, back mm -hmm. in episode 5. So one of the original guests on the show, thanks <laughs> yeah. for thanks for coming back again and updating everybody on your progress and how the business has grown. So talk a little bit about what's happened since we spoke last time. Well, uh, quickly, we went through uh, a burst of publicity right around that podcast. Um, everything kind of blew up. Uh, Touch of Modern got a hold of us. Uh, they wanted a, a bunch of product to start selling. So we ended up needing a warehouse. So I, I talked to you about, we contracted out everything, all of our mold pouring and all that. So we decided, you know, we need a warehouse, we need employees. So we got a pretty big warehouse. We got everything set up, all our fulfillment. We do through that. Everything is done in house now. And then we ramped up for end of the year for Christmas, Black Friday, and just tried to get as many high dollar products as we could. And ended up taking off pretty well with a combination of, Getting into a few online stores, uh, Touch of Modern, Man Crates, really helped out. And uh, adding some high-dollar product to our line, we ended up having a huge end of the year last year. So it kind of propelled us into this year where 
we just continue marketing by creating things, content, and distributing it through YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, all that. And it's continued to grow. And we've got a few more big collaborations with other websites that are going on right now. Uh, one of them actually might be hitting next week. So it's just trying to find out where to market our stuff and who to market to, I guess. I follow you guys on Instagram a lot more than some of your other channels. And you're constantly coming out with new things and you're trying new products and always just getting feedback from people, doing giveaways, uh, trying to increase that engagement as much as you can. You guys do an amazing job of that. Um, plus, I think the product really lends itself to that. It's one of those products that people look at and they instantly get what it is. It has this kind of novelty attraction to it that lends yeah. itself really well to social media as opposed to some other products where you really have to show the video and sell people on, hey, this is why you need it. This is kind of like someone either looks at it and tells whether they want it or they don't. And yeah. and and that's I think that's really great for you guys, because like I said, I think your Instagram strategy has been working really well for you. Yeah, we've been you know trying to post every single day just to keep engagement going. And yeah, it's it's good and bad that we can just show a picture and people, you know, they like it or they don't. But um, but it works out really well because we can get a lot of content out there just by taking photos of our product. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you, does your strategy vary among the different platforms? Like, do you do something different for YouTube or do you happen to, let's say this week you're going to pick one product and then you're focused on that product. And while you're taking photos for Instagram, you're going to shoot a really quick video and then you just kind of chop it up in the individual social media channels. Well, I, actually, it's funny because I'm doing that as I was doing that right before this podcast. We revamped our ultimate kit, which is like a higher dollar thing, a sample kit that features like most of our products. Right. Um, and I made an unboxing video for it because it's a lot of stuff. So right. I made an unboxing video on YouTube. I put the that video, I just posted it to Instagram, Facebook, all of our social media. And then at the same time, I'm making sliders. I got an email going out in about an hour or two. Um, I'm going to post it to Reddit. Um, we got, uh, and then I, you know, obviously making the Pinterest images, stuff like that. Um, so... Yeah, pretty much. I have a list of every single thing that I could possibly do, and I try to post it to every single channel when it's bigger like this, so something that we really want to push. I'll, I'll try to make images and videos about all of it and post it to everything that we can possibly do. So. And do you tailor that depending on the, the platform or are you just, you know, if it's a video, you're, it's going everywhere that accepts a video? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, okay. Videos seem to work really well uh, for Instagram. We've had some some videos of ours have really taken off. So I really have been focusing more on doing videos lately. Um, and, you know, that works well for Facebook and obviously YouTube as well. So, um if I can get away with it, I just stick to a video for whatever product we have. And then, you know, if I need images for Pinterest or something like that, I'll go that route. Any tips for people that are shooting their own videos? Like what's really work well for you guys? Well, it's easier for us having miniatures. We don't need a giant area to be taking photos. I just set up a little white wall in my office uh, using a DSLR to shoot. As long as you got good lighting, that's all. I mean, you know, white lights that are with the soft cover over them. And for the videos, I like to shoot them. You know, I, I built up a nice little rustic looking wall for my background. So if I do shoot videos, I like to kind of have that in the background. So the, you know, the videos look 
pretty interesting visually, um, along with having little tiny cool products on it. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you kept the videos down to a certain length, or is there like a type of structure that you use where you, you introduce the product and how it's being used, and then you try to make a pitch, or is there just... Um, well, I actually like to keep them under a minute because I like to use the same video for Instagram, YouTube, because there's so much that I'm doing that I'm very limited on time. So editing out like a video specifically for YouTube and Instagram is a lot more work than just knocking one out. And I figure our stuff isn't that complicated. So if I can, I should be able to keep most things under a minute. And uh, I mean, for example, we have this uh, ultimate product that has like, uh, 10 different items in it. I just did a quick unboxing of every item and kept it under a minute. So I try to do that 99% of the time. You put any effects or anything in there or have you found a raw video to work better? Uh, no, I uh, do. I'm a graphic designer by trade. So I just like simple typography. So I have simple headlines, occasionally text popping up, nothing fancy. Just quick, get it done so you can move on and do some other things. Yes, exactly. That's, that's awesome. No, great. Thanks for sharing that. And while we're talking about you growing, I'm sure people are, are wondering, like, how did you get all this coverage and publicity? Do you think a good part of that is having a product that, again, people can instantly connect to? Did you have a unique strategy just to get some of that coverage? Well, we lucked out with, well, not so much lucked out, but designing the product and continually trying to make it better. Eventually, you kind of hit something like, all right, this is it, you know, so we kept tweaking our pallet of cinder blocks until we got some, wow, like visually, this is awesome. And it's like, as soon as we did that, it's like all the publicity started. So it wasn't so much focusing on trying to get it out there. It was like, let's make this, let's perfect this until we got something like, all right, this is enough to stand on its own. You know, we'll push it out there, but it should take off. And it did. So we got a little bit lucky with kind of Everything got featured at once. Um, it hit a lot of men's gear kind of channels around that time, and it kind of just snowballed from there. So it was just mainly focusing on making something cool. The interaction that you get on social media is huge, so I bet that feedback is really helpful to improving your future products. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot. I mean, we got like almost thirty thousand Instagram followers, so. Anytime we post something, we can get a lot of feedback on what people want and what scales they want and stuff like that. So it is very helpful. How do you pick on what to work on next? Because like you said, you can go and work on something in a different scale or you can create like a different product line or you could even tackle trying to sell it on a different channel. You know, I almost feel like you can't go wrong with either one. At the moment, we are working mainly in 112 scale, um, which matches up with our uh, Palette of Centerbox because... That was our best seller. So it's like, well, let's keep stuff around that size because people seem to like that. And it's not even people who like miniatures. It's like people like it as an office accessory. So we started coming out with all kinds of like breeze blocks and red bricks and our own yeah. stuff that matches that size. Um, and we're focusing on that. And uh, we're actually in the middle of coming out with our new center blocks style um, that are more conducive to actually building uh, houses and things like that. So we're going to start focusing on more technical things and, uh, build and making kits to build large structures. And once we do that, we'll probably start diving into smaller things like focusing on railroads and focusing on tabletop games, stuff like that. I noticed that you even did some photos where like you talked about some of the tabletop accessories. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that just a completely different market that you're just testing the waters to see if it's going to pick up? Or are you, you focused, on, like you said, on the model making and the hobbyist? 
we try to keep it vague, so as many people we appeal to as many people yeah. as possible. Um, but yeah, we need to start focusing more. Um, for example, for like the miniature gardening is something that anytime we've posted anything about that, there it's just been a huge uproar. People love it. So instead of sitting here trying to create everything ourselves, we're going to start finding uh, miniature gardeners, for example, and send them product, maybe pay people and say, hey, you start making things, you know, start making videos, and we're going to start tailoring all marketing towards these people uh, using your stuff. So it's less work for us. We just let the product do the work. How has it been working with your influencers? Have you been able to reach out to people that you have a relationship with that will continue plugging your product? Or are you just, like you said, looking to hire people now to, to do marketing for you? We haven't done it enough lately. So yeah, we are actually probably next week going to start pushing really hard to do that. So next update, I'll have an answer for you. <laughs> well, you know, it sounds like you guys have been growing really quickly. And I imagine that's probably one of the main challenges in a business is staying on top of everything and making sure that you're not uh, dropping the ball in any one aspect, especially since you and Eric are having to do, you know, marketing, production, shipping, fulfillment, everything. Yeah. What has been some of the challenges that you guys have been having to work through in the past year with that much growth? Well, uh, for example, we're just coming out with a lot of uh, products in the last two months. So it's kind of tough to forecast like, all right, we're going to need two or $3,000 worth of silicone. We're going to need $3,000 in 3D prints. Um, we're going to need $3,000 in cement uh, for the rest, you know, for the next like month or so. So trying to forecast what we're going to need. And then at the same time, you never know some, some website might feature you and you're going to blow up. And so we got to kind of stay on top of everything. And we just have absolutely no idea when things could blow up. So, and you're still working your day jobs, right? Uh, yes, we are. So we have one employee who does a lot, does everything in the warehouse. She does a great job and uh, she's kind of starting to get into the marketing more. I'm kind of showing her what I'm doing. And so we're trying to focus on the bigger picture and trying to get help from as many people as possible to keep things rolling. I mean, you're basically able to bootstrap all of your growth, right? Mm -hmm. Since we talked last time, you guys just started using your own funds and you've looks like you've just continued doing that, just growing mm -hmm. on your past successes. Yeah, we yep. uh, we've been able to go from the start pretty much. But we had such a big uh, end of the year Christmas time last year that that's pretty much propelled us to where we're, we could probably do anything we want, you know, from this point forward. So just trying to be smart with it. That's all. <laughs> Congratulations. Seriously, I know that you guys have been working like crazy on this. That's awesome that it's so rewarding that you're able to see that, you know, finally this is getting somewhere and you're able to hire employees and scale <laughs> and do even more than you were doing last year. So, yeah, it's exciting stuff. I can't wait to see where it goes at the end of this year, too. So. What's that one piece of advice that you could give people that are maybe a year back from you where they're already in business and they're starting to sell, but they haven't had that rapid growth yet? What would you tell somebody that's that's just maybe a year or two back from where you are now? Keep trying to perfect your product, I would say. that's I think that's what propelled us from the start. Our main seller, you know, the one we think we sold 10 times more than anything else, our pallet of cinder blocks, it wasn't the best to me in my eyes. We spent a lot of time and perfected it, and right when we got to the point where we're like, yeah, this is it, that's when it took off. So I think, you know, obviously that works better when your product can do the talking by looking at it, but, yeah. you know, try to perfect your product.
Perfect advice. Thank you again for coming on the show. Where can people go get their own little mini materials as gifts for friends or even tabletop toys for themselves? Minimaterials.com. We are also on Amazon and Etsy as well if you prefer those. Now I'm going to have to ask you, back when uh, when we uh, talked last time, we, we didn't know if Amazon was going to be right for you just because the FBA fees are so high. Have you been yeah. able to make that work by bundling and creating a kit that's your maybe your ultimate kit or something like that that has a little bit more margin and uh, has some more room for Amazon to take their cut? Well, actually, uh, we've been pretty successful. The fees haven't been too bad. We we bumped the price up ten dollars or something like that, and we make pretty good money on it now. So, uh, is that FBA or are you fulfilling it by merchant? Yeah, that's FBA. So on a $20 product, like I've got a five pound product that I sell for $20 and they take an $8 cut. Yeah. And I imagine you guys, I mean, cinder blocks, they can probably get pretty heavy, but with mm-hmm. you being able to bump the cost up, I'm sure that's helped offset. Yeah. We, we sell them for 20 on our site and then you obviously got to pay shipping, um, if it's under a hundred dollars, but, uh, for Amazon, we sell them for 32. Okay. And they've been flying off the shelf. Really? You're not worried about uh, people on Amazon not buying because they go to your site and they feel like they can get it for less? I would love it if they came to our site instead because then I get their e- I can get their emails and stuff like that. Sure, sure. But uh, if they want to go through Amazon, I mean, I, I prefer shopping with Prime myself. So yeah, even if something's a little more expensive, you know, it's just a trust thing and people are, are buying. So even right now in April. So it's our first time doing FBA like last month. So I can't imagine. I think around Christmas time, it's, it could blow up. Bonkers. So we're going to try to get more stuff up there. And yeah, and you have to time that really well, right? Because the Christmas time or October onward, Amazon's hikes their storage fees like crazy. Mm-hmm. And you got to get it in ahead of time, I think, too. It's things that people plan for. And that's also why they hike their rates is because people are mm-hmm. just sending so much inventory over there. That Actually, that's one thing, too, uh, that was... I mean, I never thought about, but uh, we started selling on Etsy because it is handmade, uh, and that has taken off pretty well, pretty good as well. Um, and they don't take they take such a small cut. You know, a lot of people prefer buying on Etsy. Um, it's been similar sales numbers to Amazon, but uh, really? we, we take a higher cut. Yeah. Well, hey, congratulations. I mean, uh, that's awesome that you guys have been able to expand and that you're able to keep a full time employee employed and busy. Uh, fulfilling orders and so that way you guys can focus on some other things so thank you um th- thanks again for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with everybody matt um yeah. everybody everybody go to minimaterials.com check them out they've got some amazing products and honestly i think your social media accounts are definitely some accounts that i follow just to see what is working in social media because you guys do that so well thanks again oh yeah thank you very much for having us man i appreciate it Thanks again to Matt for coming and giving us an update about their business. If you haven't heard the original interview, make sure to check out episode five. And now to today's interview with Juliana from the Houston Angel Network. Hi, Juliana. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to have you talk on the show because so many listeners have written in asking to learn more about the investment process and how they can get an angel investor to invest in their small business. I'm excited to really dive into that conversation. Maybe you can give everybody a little bit of a background about how you got started with the Houston Angel Network and became the senior advisor to the Rising Tide Fund. So I started my career uh, mainly in, in banking. I was working for Citigroup in Asia 
after a few years, I was doing you know, a lot of technology work that I really liked, but I, I didn't like the big corporate world. So I didn't know what to do. I went back to London to do my MBA, and that's when I decided to go for my entrepreneurship major. I really gravitated towards that. I also did an exchange program in Berkeley, so I got to go to Silicon Valley. And I guess I, I, I got the bug, you know, the entrepreneurship bug. Yeah, right. and, and, and after that, I'm like, wow, I did an MBA, and what I want to be is an entrepreneur, but I don't have these big, crazy ideas. So what to do during the meal rounds? Everybody was going into banking. That's what I didn't like. And uh, funnily enough, there was uh, an interview to manage uh, an incubator in the French Riviera. That sounds like a rough job. It was, it was, you know, because after living in Singapore, going to London was a little tough with all the great weather and the French Riviera sounded really great to me. One year after I started with the incubator, uh, I started also managing the angel network over there. So that's that's when I started with uh, angel investing. Uh, the network at the French Riviera was extremely international because a lot of wealthy people decided to retire there and, or, you know, get the secondary home. So we ended up investing in many countries, in Asia, in Canada, in in US, and I really liked it. The the only thing is that my husband uh, got a job for Shell and we got a, a promotion to move up to Houston, and that's how I ended here. After a few years, uh, I ended up running the Angel Network just by serendipity. So that's that's how I started with Han. Uh, it's been four years already, and uh, liking every minute of it. One of the things I've been trying to do is get more women into the Han network. I think that was mm-hmm. one of uh, the priorities I had. And, and also try to get more deals outside of the Texas area and do more syndication deals with uh, other networks, not only in the U.S., but also in uh, the rest of the world. Sounds like you have a pretty full plate. Yes, I do. Looking at the Houston Angel Network, the history is pretty interesting. You've invested over $73 million in different companies, 170 companies to be exact. Uh, over 100 angels participate in the network, and you're actually ranked the number one most active angel network in the U.S. So that's some pretty interesting accomplishments for not being in Silicon Valley. Yes, yes, that's true. In in Texas, you know, you don't have that many VCs, so that's why we we cover a little bit the spectrum that maybe a VC would do in other areas like Silicon Valley or the East Coast. In our case, we might start very early on with a seed range and suddenly um, start uh, follow on investing with with the same company and end up doing their Series B or C. So the ecosystem here in Texas is is very difficult in terms of getting VC money. So we need to be able to to do follow on rounds or be creative about how to do them. Yeah, no, and we're definitely going to dive into a little bit of that, you know. But before we we get into too much detail, I wanted to cover an overview of how the process works. So for people that haven't gone through this type of funding before, can you kind of talk about uh, you know, the types of companies that you work with as an example and maybe the background of the investors that participate? Yeah, so again, we are very different than other angel groups where, you know, uh, even in Austin or Silicon Valley, everybody is very tech-oriented. Normally, they have been entrepreneurs who sold their companies and made a good exit and then they want to give back or they want to still be around like-minded individuals and and coach and and share their knowledge. 
In our case, Houston is different because uh, the opportunity cost of being an entrepreneur in Houston is pretty high. You know, you have the oil and gas industry and the medical industry, the aerospace industry, they all pay very good salaries. So, you know, getting rid of that and starting from scratch and not being paid is, is I think, a more difficult decision. So we have less entrepreneurs and we have more corporate individuals who still want to do something regarding this each they have for entrepreneurship. So uh, they still want to keep their jobs, but on the side, they want to try different things and they want to give back to the community. So we have quite a lot of uh, corporate people who are actually doing this on the side. And for that, we need to do a lot of training, uh, you know, because it's not very instant for them to get into this risk profile. They they understand that angel investing is very risky, so we need to get them into the risk groove and make sure that they understand every sector. Uh, so we have a lot of these people. We still have, of course, people who have been entrepreneurs who sold their companies and either they want to uh, invest or also they want to participate at, as co-founders in, in other companies. And we also have quite a few retired people because here people retire pretty early when they have good jobs, uh, as I mentioned before, in the energy space or, or the medical space. And uh, and then they have a lot of extra time and, and that's when they decide to, to join us. So because we have very different backgrounds, we we also invest in very different industries. We are kind of sector agnostic in some ways. So normally we have a lot of deals that come from our investors, either because they have already participated in them or because, uh, you know, they know someone or, you know, they are basically within their radar or otherwise because we are getting more and more known just because uh, we have good rankings uh, all over the U.S. So thanks for that background information about your investors. If someone were to apply to get angel investment, you know, as a company that's a startup and they want to go through the program and meet other investors, what would they need to do? We will receive applications through our website and we will start the process by assigning those applications to our sub-interest groups. So because our investment uh, range is so wide in terms of industries, we decided to create uh, a few sub-interest groups to be able to manage the deal flow. So we have a, a life science group, we have an energy group, we have an IT group, we have a consumer group, and we are putting together an aerospace group. Some of the deals that come kind of between IT and energy or life sciences and, and, uh, and IT, things like that. So in that case, we will have several groups of revising them and uh, we have experts in, in, in all kinds of sectors. Um, so normally uh, when we receive the application, either through our website or through our, one of our members, I will be the first one to filter that. If I feel that there's, um, you know, some merit to it, I will assign it to the specific group depending on, on the sector. So the subcommittee group will have a first go at it, and uh, then normally they will have a recommendation of two or three deals per month. And then those deals, um, you know, because we have four or five groups in general, we'll get from 12 to 15 companies every month, and those will go to what we call the agenda planning session. So the agenda planning session happens every first Wednesday of the month for us, and that's when the most active and the most engaged angels come and decide to, you know, cut these 12 
speak to 15 companies and select three or four who will do the pitching uh, at our pitching event. We do a meeting, but we also have a dialing for people who can't make it to the meeting, but they want to still vote for the companies. And you know, normally we select three or four companies. Those are the companies that pitch to us. So we prepare these companies for the pitching. You know, we try to review their pitch deck. We also coach them, see how well they present. So we have a dry run before that. And once they present to us, what we do is uh, we have uh, our members who put their interests. So we have an interest list per deal. And uh, out of this interest list, that's normally from five to 10 members in, when, when the deals go, go right. Uh, get interest in the, in the companies. Uh, we will create a, a due diligence group. In the first call, we do a follow-up call right after the meeting, normally two or three days after the pitch meeting. We will um, do follow-on questions, but then a leader for the due diligence will emerge and will take care of organizing uh, the documents and also the communication between the company and Han and also sharing the workload, you know, depending on who we have, in the group, uh, interest group, we will have people who are strong in finance or uh, IP or, you know, the industry itself. So we will share the workload and make sure that we cover all areas before doing the due diligence. In the case, the interest group doesn't have a specific expertise. We also have people who are our de facto due diligence people for specific sectors and specific areas like finance or, you know, accounting or uh, IP. And then we will also ask for their help to be able to, uh, to do a proper due diligence. So once the due diligence is done, we'll get a deal memo. And the deal memo normally goes out to the whole membership because we have some members who don't have time to get into the deals and, you know, have a full-time jobs and they want to only be passive investors. So once they know that, you know, some work has been done for a specific deal and, and, and you know, the answer is positive, they will go ahead and write a check. So we, we have a lot of those too. So that's, you know, after due diligence, we, we might have also a little bit of negotiation depending on how the deal is structured. We also do a lot of syndication with deals. So in many cases, we follow deals that have been already negotiated by other angel networks. We were, as Han, instrumental in the creation of the Alliance of Texas Angel Network. That was a, uh, an alliance that was created right at the time I joined Han. And uh, now uh, there are 18 angel networks in, in Texas and growing. Uh, we've been instrumental in helping them being created and, and developed. So every time someone, a specific city, asks us, you know, about best practices, even paperwork or deals, we will make sure we got the extra miles to make that happen for them. And even we will go to their first meetings to, you know, create some momentum and make sure that things are, are going well for them. And we share deals. So that's also a thing that's uh, pretty important for us. And we do a lot of syndication. You just said a lot of information there. <laughs> I'm going to try to yeah. go back and, and cover some of these things in yeah. a bit of more detail. Sure. Early on when companies are pitching Han, what are some of the typical characteristics that you look for in a company? I know you don't work with entertainment companies or real estate companies or the typical like restaurant, bar, that type of industry. Uh, you mentioned aerospace, uh, energy, um, and some of the other industries that you're specific to. But what's something particular about the company that you are looking for? You know, They've created a prototype and they've tested the market, uh, but what else is important? 
I know that you read that on, on our website, the, the entertainment, the restaurants, the real estate. That's totally true because we are angels. So we are investing in innovation. Uh, but, you know, one of the things is that many of our angels are actually full-time real estate investors or they have a big real estate company. Some of them, you know, own restaurants. And so even though, you know, we do a lot of angel investing, we know that there are also these deals are going on the side. So it's, it's very interesting because we end up talking also about those deals, even though we don't promote them, but they, we, we are aware that they happen on the side. So one of the things that ended up happening is that we invested in uh, NextSeed. NextSeed is actually a, a platform, a crowdfunding platform. They do debt for these kind of companies, you know, for restaurants or, or companies that are in the consumer space. So basically have tangible things that they can use as collateral for, for the debt. So we are very heavily involved in that, and actually, uh, Nexit then became an institutional investor of Han because Han not only has individual investors, they also have institutional, and institutional can be either funds who decide to co-invest with us, or um, we can have universities who decide, you know, they want to learn from us and be in contact with our ecosystem, or we can have also networks of people like uh, Thai, the Indus entrepreneurs, and, and other people who are interested in, in our network. So at the end of the day, you know, we have a lot of people who still do many, many deals. Um, but as I mentioned, in terms of, of, of the companies, we're like, we are pretty much sector agnostics, but we also like seeing a few things. We don't need to have revenue because uh, we know that many angel groups would only invest when, when there's revenue in the company. But we need to see some traction. And traction can be many things, depending on the sector. It could be a pilot or a prototype or a proof of concept. Basically, it, it really depends on the industry. For example, in industries like uh, life sciences, we have to go much earlier. In industries like energy, we have a pretty... A risk-prone appetite because, uh, as I mentioned, our investors love the energy space. They are many of them coming from big oil and gas companies, and they have a, a very wide knowledge in, in terms of the energy sector. So, at some point, I would say that we have invested in uh, a napkin idea where one of our members met these. Um, engineer who had a great idea, a, a patent, and he said, you know, I want to make a company out of that. And uh, our member said, okay, if you do, we'll, we'll invest in it. So that's, that's what happens. And in other sectors, you know, where maybe we don't have that much expertise or, or we need to see more tangible things, maybe in the consumer area, then we need to make sure that there are some numbers already there. Or, you know, if we're talking about ITV to see also, we need to see some traction in terms of user engagement and things like that. So it, it really depends on, on the sector. But for sure, what we like seeing is uh, that the entrepreneur has skin in the game. That means that they have bootstrapped quite a lot and that they have achieved quite a lot before coming to seeing us. And what we definitely see as a red flag is you know, these very knowledgeable people could be doctors or who have like a great paying job and they want us to basically invest in their salaries. And they said like, well, I haven't left my company yet, but uh, 
if you invest in my company and you pay my salary for the next two, three years, uh, I'll leave the company. I'll make this startup happen. Mm. That's, that's not, that's not what we do because, uh, we want to make sure you have some skin in the game uh, if you want us to, to have it too. Yeah, there needs to be something where you've got something on the line that you're going to lose as well because uh, the investors don't want to take the biggest hit. Yeah, that's correct. So when we see very big salaries on the projections or people who are just doing it part-time and they're waiting for someone to fund them to leave their jobs, that's that's a very big red flag for us. Speaking about things that you look for before you take on a, a company just to even do the due diligence, I know that the companies that are looking to apply for some of this funding have to do their due diligence as well for the investors. Yeah, that's uh, correct. So what are some of the things that uh, you've seen companies look for to make sure that there is a proper fit between the investor and the company? So, you know, the companies come to us mainly because of our expertise. So... um as I mentioned, when, when we talk about ATAN, you know, you have 18 networks out there uh, and, you know, they are all a little different. And in our case, sometimes we would say there's a company that is, for example, in the ed tech industry and comes to us. Uh, we would say, listen, um, why don't you apply first to CTAN, the Central Texas Angel Network in Austin, because they're doing a lot of deals in the ed tech space and we don't have that expertise. So. If they vet you and they consider you good enough for an investment, what we can do is follow because we will know that someone, you know, has already vetted you and we trust the network and, and we can complete the round. The other way around, every time an energy deal or life sciences deal comes over to any of the other networks in Texas, normally they have a pass and they say like, okay, why don't you check with Han first and see what they say. And then if we invest, uh, the other people will, will follow. So there's a lot of strong signals and a lot of, I would say, branding we, we have or, or we are well known for our expertises. And, uh, and in this case, we also have uh, different, different groups that have different kind of branding for that. We tend to do many deals. As I mentioned before, people who are really doing investment full-time uh, for Han is uh, about a third of the members. We have 100 members, so a third of them can really engage and dive into you know, due diligence, negotiation. So there are plenty of deals that we would try to follow, you know, because uh, I would say that's our bottleneck. You know, We don't have enough people to lead deals. So we will lead very specific deals in areas like, as I mentioned, you know, energy and life sciences. In some of the deals, we will tend to follow and we will tend to wait for the, the expert in the matter, uh, whatever angel group that is. And then after that, uh, we also have this rule, uh, the eight-hand rule, at least Han applies it. When we say if there's any other network or even a combination of network that invests 400K in one of the deals, in our case, they will bypass our selection committee and they will go straight to presentation. So normally we have three companies pitching to Han per month. But if there's an ATAN deal that, you know, complies with that rule, then we'll have a fourth one, what we call the ATAN deal. And we've been having an ATAN deal almost every month because, uh, as I mentioned, we syndicate a lot and, and we complete a lot of uh, our deals among the, the alliance. So that's that's happened quite a lot. And it's good because... We share our expertise and, and we complete that. So I think that's a, a very powerful tool. And then on 2015, that, those are the latest stats that we have. Three networks were on the top five uh, were from Texas. So we had 
Han, we had Sitan in Austin, and we also had the Baylor Angel Network. So that was uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Before we get into some of that, I also wanted to talk about something else that you mentioned. Companies will be brought in after the vetting process to make a pitch. And a lot of the times it's, I, I think at least I've seen some businesses not do a proper pitch because they don't understand some of the, the basics that go into that. And by that, I mean a quick statement that says, hey, this is the value that we're providing to the market. This is the problem that we're solving and what the solution is that we're bringing, how much funding that we need. And they should go into some sort of a detail about their sales and marketing strategy to show how they're going to access that market. And then maybe some financial projections and key milestones and, and talk about the team a little bit. What's something that you've noticed in pitches that just stands out to you as either being the right way to go and it attracts a lot of investment or the other way around where you see it as a big mistake that just completely turns off investors? So there are a few things that really turn us off. Um, I would say with all these um, uh, great thing about uh, demo days and accelerators, um, to us, I think every pitch looked the same. You know, the way they, they crack the first joke and then they say, like, I'm this entrepreneur and I work for that. And, uh, um, well, then, you know, there was also this, this thing about the Jobs Act and not being able to display all the information. So in terms of, 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 the, of the ask and things like that. So at the end, in the, I think people started doing pitches the, the demo day way that was more like marketing and was more like to be able to capture your attention and put up a show. But to us, all the deals look the same. You know, we couldn't differentiate them because there's plenty of things that we want to dig in that was they were, they were not there in the pitch. So... You end up not knowing who's what and who's doing really what, and, and it was uh, really lame. So uh, we decided, uh, you know, that we didn't like this kind of, uh, of pitches, and we made it very clear every time, you know, we have a company doing a dry round and going for, for that kind of pitch. So that's, that's one thing that we, we, we don't go for. Then there's this problem we have with the life science speeches. That's because the technology and the science behind the life sciences is um, very difficult to explain in many cases. And in general, one of the main entrepreneurs or the main entrepreneur who does the pitch is actually the guy behind the science. So he kind of gets in love with the science and that would be the only thing he would explain. So out of the eight minutes, uh, five would be spent into the product and the competitive advantage, basically all the science and then the rest will be, you know, to talk about go-to-market strategy, FDA approvals and all that. And, and, you know, at the end, they will do 30 seconds about what they think the deal would be. This thing can happen not only to life sciences, can happen to anything that is uh, pretty technical, could be either in the energy world sure. or, you know, in the, any kind of uh, industry deal that we may have. But in life sciences, it tends to happen quite a lot. So we, that's, that's what we do when, when we're trying to coach. We, we tell them that at least, you know, they need to cut to a max of three minutes to talk about the market, the competitive advantage and the product. And then the rest should be about how you're going to make money for us. So the business model, that's what we need to know. And when we talk about business model, we're also talking about margins. We're talking about cost of acquisition. Uh, we're talking about burn rates. We talk about projections. We talk about when you estimate that you're going to break even, uh, how many funds of, um, how many rounds of funding you will need for, to achieve that. 
um, sensitivity analysis, what would happen if you don't get there, if you get there on time or not, or if you, uh, you know, how long your company will last if you don't get any more funding, uh, all these things, and of course, exits. Every time I get a, a pitch deck, it's very rare that to see an exit slide, and, and that's the most important slide for us. Doesn't mean that we, you know, if you just started your company, we need to know exactly who you're going to sell to and now what valuation and what multiples you're going to get. But you, we need you to think about it, and you need to Right, what's your strategy? Sure, yeah. yeah, what's your strategy? What is your timeline? What are some prospective buyers out there that you might have identified already, even if you might have not talked to them? And then if you know about any company that is kind of similar to, to yours or kind of in, in a different space, but parallel to what you want to do in terms of business model or innovation, that's sold to another company and what multiples they got so that we can have an idea of what would happen if you were to exit. So those are things that in general are not there and we really like putting so that's really great input. You know, along the same lines, has there been a presentation that you've sat through that said, wow, this is really creative or they did this in an interesting way or that's refreshing and I wish that other people would do it more this way? Was there something that kind of stood out to you? It's difficult to say, you know, because I would say that I've seen companies that are super flashy and they really put up a show. And some of the companies also just make you dream. As I mentioned, we also do in aerospace. So we're talking about nanosatellites or asteroid mining, you know. Sure. So when you talk about those things, it's like, oh, my goodness, this is happening. Or, you know, it, it really makes you dream. And you listen to it bewildered and thinking, well, you know, this is really interesting. But then at the same time, maybe, you know, you were glad you had it because it's uh, very entertaining and very interesting. But then when you see the interest list, it's like, okay, this is way too crazy, you know, and people maybe are into nanosatellites, but asteroid mining is like a whole other level, you know. And then maybe some other pitches are really boring. I had one about COBOL and replacing COBOL uh, in my last piece that I thought was like super boring. But a lot of people got it and, you know, they got quite a lot of traction. So sometimes, you know, the pitch is one thing and then uh, the strategy and I would say the execution is, is another thing. And uh, when you have credible people um, in, within, you know, the, the, the main uh, team and, you know, they might be not as flashy as uh, some other people and not doing such a great job at pitching, but we, we make a lot of the difference between the pitching and, and the traction of the company and what's what's going on behind the company. So I think that's also a thing that distinguishes us from, from the rest of the networks. And as a network, one of the things I noticed is that you don't sign NDAs, but uh, whatever happens after the evaluation or during the evaluation phase is maybe a different matter with investors. Correct. Do you have a perspective on NDAs? Like I myself, I don't see much value in them because they're so difficult to enforce and they make it a little bit problematic to consult with multiple people in the same space because you don't want to kind of uh, step on anyone's toes. You don't, you know, in a way you can't unhear something and it's difficult to reach back in your brain and say, oh, this is the one piece that influenced this line of thinking. 
So I, I think that makes NDAs a little bit problematic, but maybe you can kind of jump in and, and mention why does uh, Han not really sign those with early stage companies? So legally, we're not able to, to sign them. You know, there's no way Han can represent all the members and say like, you know, we are sure that because we have just signed an NDA, one of these members is going to, to just not display the information. That's that's one. And, and the second is we, we really believe that if you're not able to talk about your competitive advantage and, and make a pitch without having to sign an NDA, your business is, is, is not good enough. I mean, uh, you need to be able to, to, to pitch to us without having to have an NDA. I agree that maybe an NDA will be uh, needed at the end when you're doing due diligence and you want to see a specific contract with uh, you know, a specific customer, big customer that doesn't want to release information or the identity and, and things like that. And, and then the individual investor will decide individually if he or she wants to sign the NDA, the NDA. And we've done that. But very early on, we we don't do that. And when, you know, entrepreneurs get hooked with the NDA thing and don't want to display information, that's kind of a red flag for us because we've seen plenty of ideas that are, I mean, an idea can be copied a million times, right, you know, right. and, 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 we've, and we've come up with companies that do exactly the same thing. What really matters is the execution in general, you know, unless we have like an innovation that, I mean, and even the innovation would be very, very difficult to, to replicate. So uh, what matters is the team behind. And, and, and many of us very successful companies didn't have such an innovative idea. It was more the way they executed it. So um, if you don't want to even share the idea, um, that, that says something about you because most successful entrepreneurs have been the ones who have been sharing their ideas and getting a lot of feedback about it and uh, having a lot of people as sounding boards and making sure that they would refine every time the idea, the business model. And in many cases, great companies have been rejected multiple times and those rejections helped the business uh, change and pivot the business and, and make the business as great as it is now. So, I think it's actually a good thing to be able to share a lot of the information about your deal. Yeah, absolutely. Maximizes the amount of feedback that you get. And that's really what you need up front because otherwise you can end up going the wrong direction and wasting a lot of time and money. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially other people's money now, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, we do a lot of coaching much more than, than we invest actually. We are in a lot of touch with, with those companies. We do a lot of office hours. We do a lot of mentoring for, you know, most of the accelerators around and even, you know, virtually too. And, um, and, and we give them feedback. And when we say you haven't been selected for pitching, you know, we always say like, well, if you fix this and that, you know, and you are in touch with us and you let us know most probably you, you will pitch to us. And that's happened a lot. We have companies that pitch to us after being rejected three or four times and changing whatever they needed to get changed and then presenting to us and getting our investment. So, and we see that actually as a, as a, a very good thing, you know, to be able to be coachable and also listen and, and apply the, the learning. So I think that's that's a great uh, trading and entrepreneur. Yeah, you hear that so many times now that investors are investing more in people than they are in the technology because they believe in the people's ability to execute. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, make understand that you've done this before, that even if you are 20 years old, you've already exited a company 
and that have already created this great product and that the team rocks. And then they will listen with a more open mind to this idea that you want to show to us. So, yes, definitely. I really believe in, in the team and um, and the ideas like, can be replicated. But I would say that the opportunities are an idea with a good execution. And for that, we need a team. It's, it's very easy to have ideas. Thanks for explaining all of that. So, you know, as we wrap up, is there anything that small companies can do to increase their chances of getting an investor to to go through the due diligence process, like a soft skill or something that they have influence over? Obviously, if the financials aren't there or if the technology isn't there, that's one thing. But I feel like sometimes investors can kind of self-sabotage their own deal sometimes. So the earlier you start, the better, because you'll have a champion. I think having a champion between Han a Han investor says, like, I really believe in these guys. I've been coaching them for a while. They're a really great stamp of a ball. You know, you already have a champion. And then, uh, you know, uh, I would say that listening to what we have to say and waiting uh, for the right time, you know, some of the companies want to present and they really force the presentation and they don't listen to the fact that we think they might be too early for us. Some companies went ahead and presented and then faded because it's a lot about timing. You know, it has to be right for us and for them. Great advice there. Do you have any parting advice for aspiring business owners or startups that maybe they're at the bootstrapping stage right now? They've got funding from friends and family. They've you know created a company and they're looking to grow. And at some point, they might be looking for that outside investment. Do you have any advice for those types of people right now? When you finally get a, the million or half a million you need, you know, that's a victory. But that's when your problem starts. It's like marrying someone, you know. You get capital, you get married, but then the difficult part starts. They will forget about making sure the company stays healthy, making sure that you get good customers. And, and you know, unfortunately, entrepreneurs need to do both at the same time. And if one takes over the other, normally it's trouble. So make sure that your company runs and make sure that you don't need the money. You know, we love investing in companies that don't need our money and, and basically can can do great without having us, but we can help them accelerate their growth. So don't jeopardize your company just because you are fully in fundraising mode. We know it's very difficult. Customers are the priority. So we can also help you with that. We have a lot of banks. We have a very big roller deck. Uh, and sometimes I would say that that aspect of angel investing is much more important than the money we give. And we have a smart money and, um, you know, the contacts or the expertise we can give to our companies is much more valuable than the check we may write. Juliana, thanks again for coming on the show. How can people find out more about the Houston Angel Network and even apply to be a company that gets investment? Yeah, so we have our website, HoustonAngelNetwork.org. Uh, I also have uh, my contact email and uh, our phone number there. Once you apply to our website, send me a little note to tell me that you have. It's not very easy to differentiate the good deals from the ones that, you know, spam everybody. So if you have applied to us, make sure that you send me or where is your contact, Han, a little note to let us know that you're waiting for a response from us. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Juliana. It was uh, great talking to you and getting more information about Han. Uh, wish you guys all the best. And uh, again, thanks again for sharing all your information. Thank you. Thank you so much, Philip. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Juliana. Here are my three takeaways for today's interview. Number one, have skin in the game. 
You will see this on Shark Tank as well as with investors that you meet on the street. If someone hasn't invested their own personal funds into their business, then outside investors rarely take that risk. Number two, know your audience when pitching. Investors want to see their return on investment and understand all the risks. Show them your strategy for growth. Don't spend a majority of your time showing the science or the benefits of your product. And number three, use NDAs in later conversations. So to quote Juliana, if you're not able to talk about your company and give a pitch without signing an NDA, your business isn't good enough. Many entrepreneurs share their ideas with everyone to maximize feedback and reduce their risks. So if you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com, scroll to the footer of any page, and sign up to the weekly wrap-up. At the end of the week, you'll get my three takeaways for each guest, along with interesting articles, free tools, and inspiring innovations to help you with your own product startup. Next week, we talk to Tim Christian with OORR about his line of custom cycling apparel, so don't miss that episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for the 14-day Just Start Challenge at theproductstartup.com slash just start. It's free, it's live, but it closes tomorrow, Wednesday, April 18th. So make sure to get in on that before it closes. Thanks again for joining me. I hope that you're taking action on developing your products, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.